During our summer months, July and August, we've been in a series called Cross Reference on Wednesday nights, and I pray that it's been a blessing and a benefit to you. I believe there is great value in understanding the Bible, uh, in not just reading the Bible, but actually studying the Bible. Paul told Timothy, study to show yourself approved. Not just read the scripture, but study it to show yourself approved unto God. And as you see the, the pattern and the outline and the plan of scripture unfold, you can begin to see what we've called cross-references. Because the cross is the centerpiece of all of God's word. This Bible that you have and hold and cherish and read and study, it is written prophetically. God could append it backwards if he'd wanted to because he knew the end from the beginning and the cross is at the center. We've taken time over the last five lessons that we've shared and we'll finish tonight. We've looked at 10 segments of the scripture over these six lessons. We started with the law of Moses, and then we talked about the history of Israel when they took the land, when they had the reign of the kings, uh, when they were uh, in captivity, and then they had to come back and rebuild. We talked about the books of poetry and the books of prophecy, and then we flipped the page to the New Testament, and we talked about the Gospels, the ministry of Christ, and we talked about the powerful book of Acts, literally the hinge book of the New Testament, uh, the church. And tonight we're going to finish up. We are most familiar with the books of the Old and New Testament in their Bible order. You open your Bible and, and you see them in order. And that's the order that we're most familiar with. Uh, this groups them together according to their content. In the Old Testament, for example, there are 17 books of history. We call them law, land, reign, and, and rebuild. There's five books of poetry and then there's 17 books of prophecy. Then you go to the New Testament. In the New Testament, you've got five books of history, uh, the Gospels and the book of Acts. You've got 21 books of letters, epistles or teaching and one book of prophecy at the end. And we'll talk about that tonight. So that's the books of the Bible in their biblical order. But you will understand the flow of scripture better if you also know the chronological order of the books of the Bible, because the order they appear in your Bible, that's grouping them by content, but they also have a chronological order, the order that the events happened in. Now, we've already talked about that in the Old Testament, and I won't rehearse that, but if you uh, draw your attention to the New Testament, the New Testament was written over a period of about four decades, 40 years in the first century. Jesus' crucifixion, the birthday of the church, all of that happened around A.D. 30. But they didn't write anything down for about 20 years until around the time of the church council in Acts 15. And then uh, the book of James was written, the book of Galatians was written around then. Paul pens books to the churches during his missionary journeys. Uh, he, he pens more letters during his imprisonment. He not only writes to churches, he writes to young men that he is mentoring like Titus and Timothy and Philemon. And all of this takes us through the 50s of the first century, through the 60s of the first century, and uh, somewhere in the mid-60s of the first century, both Paul and Peter are martyred. Many other uh, Christians meet their end there under persecution from the despotic emperor Nero. 
Paul's final letter to, to Timothy, 2 Timothy, a personal letter, is written just before he dies there. And uh, Hebrews, Jude, uh, they were written uh, during that decade as well, before the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And, and that's just devastating, of course, to Jerusalem, the nation of Israel. The Jews are scattered again. And uh, it's, it's just very devastating. For the next 20 years, the only surviving apostle is John. He doesn't pick up his pen until the early 90s, and he writes five books. And we'll talk about one of them in particular tonight. And so uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks, this is what we've been doing. We talked about the Gospels, the, the story of Christ. Matthew was a disciple of Jesus. That's where he got his content. He wrote his gospel to the Jews. He's constantly reaching back into the Old Testament and saying, Jesus said this, did this, went here, uh, this happened to Jesus, so it might be fulfilled. He wants to prove to the Jews that Jesus is their Messiah. Mark writes to the Romans. He's the youngest of the writers. He's a companion of the Apostle Peter. That's where he gets much of his information. And, and depending on what region you're talking about in the Roman Empire, anywhere between 15% up to 40% of the population were slaves. And so Mark knows that that's how Romans think. And when he writes to them, he writes about Jesus being the suffering servant on a mission from heaven. And that uh, identifies with them. Luke was a companion of the Apostle Paul. Uh, he often traveled with him. You can tell when he's with Paul in the book of Acts because he'll either say they went or he'll say we went. You can tell exactly when he's with Paul. And he gets his information from Paul and he writes his gospel to the Greeks. The Greeks, uh, that Grecian empire, uh, they were the birthplace of the humanities. And although Rome overtook them and overthrew them, they had done so much that much of it was not replaced or displaced. Rome just took it over. Uh, the, the Greeks, they birthed uh, the humanities like history and art, philosophy, language, law. And so Luke consistently portrays Jesus as the perfect man, the son of man whose example we need to follow. And that identified with the Greeks. Now, John writes 30 years after the other three. They all write in the 60s somewhere just before many Christians are martyred. But John writes 30 years later. He outlives everybody else. He's the only surviving apostle of the church for 30 years. And by the time he writes, it is 60 years after the day of Pentecost. He's the only original voice left. And so he also was a disciple of Jesus, and his goal is slightly different. He's not trying to address a people group and convince them that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God, whatever. He wants to tell us exactly who Jesus is. Because false doctrine and false teachers have been attacking the church at the end of the first century. And so he does more than any other gospel writer to tell us about Jesus' identity. Not just what Jesus said, not just what Jesus did, but who Jesus was. And I said when we were talking about it, if we lose that revelation, brothers and sisters, no other revelation matters. If Jesus isn't Jesus, divine healing doesn't operate. If Jesus isn't Jesus, the new birth doesn't work. If, if he's not God, you, you see, it all depends on this revelation of the mighty God in Christ. That brought us to the book of Acts or the church. And the book of Acts is God's blueprint for building an apostolic church. 
The book of Acts is a hinge. It is central to your understanding of the New Testament. Why? Because it is the only link between the Gospels, which is the ministry and the teaching of Jesus. It's the only link between the Gospels and the Epistles, which is full-blown Christianity. So it's a historical link. If you didn't have the book of Acts, you'd end in Jerusalem with a man named Jesus and you would flip a page and you'd be in Rome uh, with a man named Paul writing to Christians. You wouldn't know what had happened. The book of Acts is the historical link, the only historical link between the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. But here's what's so important. It is not only the only historical link, it is the only experiential link between the Gospels and the book of Acts. What do we mean by that? We mean this. You cannot get into the church through the Gospels. Jesus didn't come to start a church. He left that to his apostles. He came to pay the price so there could be a church. He came to pay the price so people could be saved and be in the church, but he left the job of starting the church to his disciples, to his apostles. So you can't get in the church just by reading the Gospels. You have to obey what Jesus told his apostles to preach, and they preached it, and we preach it, and we obey it. And it is the Acts 2, 38 experience that puts you into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So without going through the book of Acts, you, you can't get the experience of the New Testament church. You can't get in the church unless you're willing to go through the book of Acts. Without that new birth experience, you turn to the epistles, they don't apply to you. And that's a problem in modern Christendom because people read things out of the epistles and they say, oh, that's how to be saved. Just have faith or that's how to be saved. Uh, you, you know, you're justified by faith or that's how to be saved. And, and, and what they don't understand is that those epistles are referencing back to the book of Acts. Here's how we said it last week. The gospels precede the New Testament church. Everyone say precede. The gospels come before the new birth experience of repentance and baptism in Jesus name and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. That's all prophesied, but it hasn't happened yet. It can't happen until the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. So the, the, the new birth experience is prophesied. Remember this, Jesus said, uh, out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. And John added this little uh, verse. He said, this spake he of the Holy Ghost that they which believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the gospels look ahead to the book of Acts. That's very important. But here's what else is important. The, the gospels precede the book of Acts, but the epistles presume the book of Acts. Everyone say presume. They assume that you've already had a new birth experience. The epistles assume that you're already born again of the water and the spirit. The, the New Testament uh, epistles, they presume that every one of the people who will read these letters or, or, or present these letters to a local church, they presume that the people they're addressing have already been through the book of Acts. They are writing to apostolic. So, so that brings us to our topic for tonight, and that is the 21 teaching books, the epistles, the letters that are in the New Testament. When you're reading the epistles, brothers and sisters, and, and that's the reason we've taken the summer on midweek uh, nights to, to do this, when you're reading the epistles, it really helps to know the background 
in order for it all to make sense. And you can ask some questions that will help you understand these epistles. We've literally taken our midweeks to do what in a classroom would be called a Bible survey course. And if there's anything I've wanted to do this summer is to stir up in you a desire to not just skim read or surface read the Bible, but to pause a little bit and say, well, I don't understand that. Let me search that. You are the greatest generation in history uh, as far as resources go. You, you can ask Siri, and Siri will answer some Bible questions. Not all of them accurately, but she'll at least try. You can Google, and you can find all kinds of things online. So it's easier for us than ever before, and we need to take advantage of that. When, when you're reading the epistles, ask yourself questions like this. Who is writing? What church or individual is being addressed? When are they writing? And what's happening to that writer himself at this moment? Or what's happening to other believers that he's addressing at this time? Is there a difficult situation in their church or in their city? Are they under pressure or are they under persecution? Are there false doctrines or false teachers that the writer is dealing with? Where's the author writing from? And is this letter being written maybe during a missionary journey or perhaps from a jail cell? And in the case of the double letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, uh, in the case of the double letters, what subjects were addressed in the other epistle that goes with the pair? All good questions. And I've said this before in this series, that information is easily obtainable in a Bible dictionary, in a Bible commentary, or easily online simply by searching the book of whatever, 2 Timothy, 1 Corinthians, you can find a lot of information. And doing just a little bit of homework up front will really increase your understanding of that book. And so tonight, as we kind of just take a, a bird's eye view of the epistles, I want to give you a, a couple of examples where knowing the background really helps us understand the book. Uh, Galatians and James, we'll, we'll take them first. Galatians and James, they were both penned around the time of that church council in A.D. 50 that's recorded in Acts 15. The entire purpose of that council was to figure out whether they were going to allow Gentiles into the church at all. Whether the Gentiles would have to obey all the Jewish law before they would allow them to become Christians. Specifically the law of circumcision. And the apostles are getting pressure from both sides. Some people think, well, we should just drop everything and let the Gentiles do whatever they want. And other people are saying, no, they've got to obey all the Jewish law before we allow them to be apostolics. So whatever they decide at this church council will literally affect the direction and the future of the church. It will affect its growth. It will affect who they preach to. It will affect who's allowed to get saved. So both Paul and James begin to write. These are the first two epistles chronologically in the New Testament. And, and neither one of them hold their punches. Here's Paul. We know that a man is not justified by the works of the law. So you know what side he's on. 
He's not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So that's Paul's contribution around the time of the church council. We're not justified by the good works of the law. And meanwhile, James picks up his pen around the same time and uh, he writes these words in chapter 2 of his book. A man might say, you have faith and I have works. You show me your faith without your works, but I choose to show you my faith by my works. You know what side he's on. You believe that there's one God? Oh, good for you. You're doing really well. The devils also believe and they tremble. At least the demonic realm has an emotional reaction to the fact that there's one God. You're looking kind of a little staid and quiet. And, but at least the devils get excited about it. But wilt thou know, O vain man, watch this, that faith, now Paul just told us that we're not justified by the works of the law, we're justified by faith. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And here's James. Wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. It doesn't do anything. So there's the two perspectives written in these two letters. And as you read the book of Galatians, it's all about faith and it's all about freedom from having to do all the works and all the requirements of the law. But as you read James, it's all about, you better get real. You can say you have faith all day long and all night long and all week long, but if you don't ever do anything, it's dead faith. It doesn't count. And, and so at first glance, it appears like these two apostles are arguing, but they're not. Paul is talking about the root of faith. But James is talking about the fruit of faith. And what I mean by that is, before you ever get saved, long before you know anything about Jesus, when you come to God, you've got to have faith that this is all going to work. If you don't have faith in the word of God, if you don't have faith in the new birth message, if you don't have faith in the Bible, if you don't have faith in Jesus' power to save you, cleanse you, forgive you, you'll never start your relationship with God. So Paul is talking about the root of faith, how it starts, that we're not saved by doing a bunch of good. That's not why we got saved. You were saved because you believed in God enough to approach him. You believed in God enough to obey his word. You believed in God enough to say, Jesus, please forgive me. And you started your walk with God by faith. It wasn't by works. You didn't have to do 48 days of, of good works. You didn't have to fast for a week. You, you didn't have to change everything about your life before you could come to God. It was all based on faith, not by works. Everyone say, not by works. So, so, so that's Paul's perspective. He's talking about the root of faith. Before we're ever saved, before we're a child of God, it happens by faith. You can't do enough good works to merit being a Christian. You, you can't live good enough so that God says, oh, I got to have you in my kingdom. You can't live good enough to get rid of your sin problem. So before we're in the church, it's all by faith. That's Paul. But James said, yeah, good, Paul. That's great. I agree. But once you are a child of God, you best be doing something good. 
Once you are a child of God, you better be obeying the commandments of God. Once you are a child of God, it's not that God demands good works in order to save you. It's that once you're saved, you do good works out of gratitude for the fact that he did save you. And I would say in the 21st century, we don't live the way we live and keep the commandments of God that we keep. We don't do that because we're worried that we're not saved. We do that because we're so thankful that we are saved. That's why we do all of that stuff. I'm not doing that so God can check off his little list every day and he doesn't kick me out of his kingdom. I'm doing that because I am so thankful to Jesus that when I was a sinner, he lifted me out of sin. And when I was bound, he broke the shackles and the chains of all of that junk. And I'm so grateful that I'm part of his family. I live his commandments for the same reason. I live the commandments in the home that I grew up in. I wanted to please my parents because my parents provided a wonderful life for me. Well, I want to please my Lord and Master because He has provided this wonderful life for me. But guess what? This isn't the end of this wonderful life. There's a heaven coming at us like a freight train and and I'm so glad we get to go there and that is why we live the way we live. Not one other thing. So it's correct to say I am saved by faith, not by works. But it's equally correct to say, if I have faith, I will do some good works. And so Paul's talking about the root of faith, how it looks before you get saved and how you get saved. You can't do enough good works to merit salvation. James is talking about Hey, Christians, once you are saved, you better pay attention to the word of God. You're in the family now, and there are some responsibilities and privileges, etc. And so basically, what they agree on is we are not saved by good works, but we are saved unto good works. That's a phrase actually from Paul, not from James. So they both agree. We must have both faith and good works in our lives. And sure enough, because those two epistles were feeding into the discussion, that's exactly what the church council decided. Here's the end of the church council. Wherefore, my sentence is, my recommendation, James says, is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. Let's not put on them all the Old Testament and all the tabernacle and all the temple and all the priesthood and feasts. and Let's not put all of that on them. Let's not put uh, the commandment and the covenant of circumcision and whatever. That's what God gave to the Jewish people. Let's not put all that on them. So he says, we're going to just let them be saved by faith. But watch this. But let's also write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols... You can't just come and bring your idol worship into the church. And, and from fornication, sexual sin, and, and from things strangled, why is that? And from blood, eating blood specifically. That's because that's what a lot of the pagan nations did and ate. And, and that's not, that was offensive to the Jews. And he said, so, so, so we're going to set it up so that we understand the Gentiles don't have to become Jews to become Christians. But by the same token, we're going to tell them there's a few things that you could do for the Lord and for the church that would really help us. You see the balance between faith and works. They work together. They're not opposed. So so when you understand where Hebrews or where uh, James comes from and where Galatians comes from, 
then you can understand a little bit more about that church council and vice versa. So a little bit of, of history, a little bit of study, really uh, illuminates your understanding of the scripture. Hebrews is another example. Uh, the book of Hebrews is written to a group of Christians who were once Jews and they live later. They live in the mid-60s of the first century and they're discouraged. There's intense persecution and they feel like they've lost everything by following Jesus and the writer emphatically lets them know something. He says, no, you haven't lost everything by following Jesus. In fact, you have a better covenant you have better promises, you have a better mediator, you have a better high priest, you have a better sacrifice, a better possession, a better country, a better resurrection. You've got a better hope. He said, by now, but now Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant. And that new covenant, the New Testament was established upon better promises. He's writing to people that are about ready to throw in the towel. He's writing to people that think, I gave up so much for Jesus. And he said, no, you didn't give up so much for Jesus. You inherited so much when you started serving Jesus. A little bit of background illuminates your understanding. The Apostle Paul wrote four letters to the churches during his time in prison. Philippians was the last one he wrote to a church. He wrote some personal letters during that same time period of his life. Personal letters. Second Timothy was the last one. But if you think to yourself while you're reading those books, hey, Paul is writing these words from a prison cell. Boy, it changes your understanding of a lot that he wrote. This is what he writes to the Philippians. This is the last letter he ever writes to a church I would have you understand, brethren, the things which happen unto me. What's happened to him? He's been unjustly arrested. He's been beaten. He's been whipped. He's been chained up in a cell. It looks like he's going to be executed. The things that happened unto me have fallen out rather to the furtherance of the gospel. He says this, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace. Whose palace? The royal palace of Caesar Nero, one of the most demonic, despotic rulers in the history of this planet. He said, my bonds in Christ, they know that down underground in the Mamertine prison, in a dirty, damp little cell, there's a crazy apostle that will not stop preaching the gospel of Jesus, even up in the palace of Caesar Nero, they're talking about it and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, they are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Oh my goodness. The devil thought that by locking up the apostle Paul in a Roman prison that he would shut down the church or at least intimidate the church. And it didn't work that way. In fact, Paul said, the brethren, knowing that I'm locked up here and I won't quit preaching even though I'm locked up, I won't quit worshiping God even though they're beating me, I won't quit serving God even though it looks like I'm going to lose my life for doing just that. It had the opposite effect of what the devil intended. He said, the brethren, they are waxing confident by my bonds. What happened in the first century is up on the streets of Rome, the Christian 
Christians who were being persecuted, they were saying to each other, if Paul can serve Jesus in a dungeon, I can serve Jesus on my job. If Paul can worship Jesus in chains, I can worship Jesus even if I'm fighting depression. If Paul can serve God when he's about to die, I can serve God with all the breath and all the life and all the energy I've got. They wax more confident because of his bonds. It's amazing. You remember this that Paul said in one place. He said, I may be bound, but the word of God is not bound. I come to this service tonight to tell you, I don't care how it looks or how it feels. I don't care what you're walking through or going through. The word of God is not bound. Don't let the devil ever tell you the word of God won't work for you. The word of God doesn't work for you. You're the exception to all the rules. You're the exception to all God's promises. That's just the devil talking in your ear. I may feel bound. It may look bound. It may be uh, something that I can hardly negotiate emotionally. But in the middle of my worst trial and my worst day, the word of God is not bound. It means so much more when you know what Paul was living through. He says in another place, he said, The saints of Caesar's household salute you. He's closing out a letter. Can you imagine that? This is Caesar Nero. This is the despotic ruler who set Christians on fire. He covered them with tar, set them on fire, tied to posts to light up his garden parties. This is the Caesar who would put Peter crucified on a cross upside down and behead Paul. This is that Emperor Nero. And Paul said, and the saints of Caesar's house salute you. While Nero is up there in the throne room thinking he's running the world, he's got some servants, he's got some people in his household that are doing all kinds of menial tasks, but down where he can't see them, somewhere down in a wine cellar or a kitchen or out in a courtyard, they're praying people through to the Holy Ghost and baptizing people in Jesus' name, and he doesn't even realize it. And Paul gets to say, hey, there are Christians, there are apostolics right under the nose of Caesar Nero the saints of Caesar's household, they say hello. Jesus, I pray that that happens in Afghanistan right now. I pray that happens right under the nose of the Taliban and every other kind of terrorist group that the saints of God, they will be preserved, they will be, uh, they will be protected and God will use them powerfully because he's already done it in history. It means so much more when you realize what they're walking through. That was the last letter he ever wrote to the churches. This is the last letter he ever wrote to a young friend, to Timothy. Timothy, I'm now ready to be offered. The weeks have moved on, and he knows that his execution is imminent. I am now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. No, I'm not getting out of prison released to the streets. I'm getting out of prison a different way. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. And Timothy, I have kept the faith. It amazes me sometimes how people can spiral down so quickly when they've got so many blessings in their lives. Paul at this point has no blessings in his life except the Lord Jesus. And he still says, I've kept the faith. 
Henceforth. See, he's not focused on how he feels today. He's focused on what he's going to receive tomorrow. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, I'm not the only one, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Hmm. The world is in a mess. Pastor already referenced it. The world is in a mess. The world is falling apart at the seams. We've got so many fissures and fractures and tensions and so much trouble. We've got all kinds of, uh, 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 of movements that are tearing us apart and, and, and tearing people apart. And it's just a disaster out there. We've always had some of that. But have you noticed it's got so much worse in such a short time? The violence that has overtaken major cities right here in North America. There's so many people right now that literally hate each other. And we shouldn't be surprised because the Bible talked about it in the signs of the times. But we do not have our hope in the federal government or the provincial government or the municipal government. We don't have our hope in the banks or the stock market. We don't have our hope in what we can pull together as a church. Our hope is far greater than that. It goes far beyond that. We are in love with his appearing. We just love the idea that someday when you least expect it, someday when you're just walking along, someday when you're just going to work, Jesus is going to crack the sky and he's going to take his church home and all of this junk will be over I love my life I love this church I love my family I have a good and a wonderful life I have no complaints but if Jesus decides to come tomorrow I'm not second guessing him if Jesus decides to come before the end of the year he won't have any complaint for me because once you're in heaven folks you're safe once you're in heaven, nothing can happen to you anymore. No, oh my. I know this is kind of a different series. We'll, we'll move on. Every epistle, every letter in the New Testament has a background story. You can understand some things when you just read them through, but you'll understand so much more if you take even just 10 minutes, five minutes, when you start the book, you don't have to do this every time you read a verse, just before you start reading a book of the Bible, just take 10 minutes online and, and read a summary of what's going on. You'll understand so much more. You'll, you'll get to know the lives and the conversion stories and the ministries and the circumstances of the men who wrote those books. It's very easy to discover we have so many tools. It's very illuminating to understand and it's well worth your time. And it has been the goal of this series to stir up a curiosity and a desire in you to do just that. And we'll head toward the conclusion of tonight and of this service and this series. The last section of the Bible is the book of Revelation. And I've just titled it Triumph because it is. <laughs> Revelation is not just the last book in the Bible chronologically. It is the last book in the Bible prophetically. It points the first century church and the 21st century church to the triumph of our eternity with Jesus Christ. 
John, who is now in his 90s, writes this book from the Isle of Patmos, where he has been imprisoned by Rome to do hard manual labor. When he writes, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, he's not referring to worshiping with fellow believers on Sunday. No, what he's saying is, the Spirit of God picked me up and in a vision put me into the last of the last days. God showed me the end of time when he alone would set everything right. Revelation is the perfect last book of the Bible. Revelation is the perfect counterpart to the opening book of Genesis. In Genesis, earth is created. In Revelation, that old earth is passing away. In Genesis, the sun and the moon appear. In Revelation, there's no more need for the sun and the moon. In Genesis, a garden is our home. In Revelation, the new Jerusalem, the holy city of God, is our home. In Genesis, we see the marriage of the first Adam. But in Revelation, we see the marriage supper of the Lamb, the marriage of the second Adam. My goodness. I got to wipe these tears. I can't read. I'm so grateful for the promise of the scripture. In Genesis, we see the deception of Satan. It messes everything up. But in Revelation, we see the final doom of Satan, and it straightens everything up. In Genesis, man is placed under a curse, and we've been suffering with it ever since for 6,000 years of human history. Every person in this building that has a physical infirmity or a weakness in your body or a sickness that you're battling, it all dates back to the curse that was introduced in the book of Genesis. But in the book of Revelation, there shall be no more curse. In Genesis, we're introduced to suffering and sorrow and tears. But in Revelation, there shall be no more sorrow, no more pain, and all tears will be wiped away. In Genesis, humanity is driven away from the tree of life. But in the book of Revelation, we're welcomed back into the presence of the tree of life in the new Jerusalem. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. My, my, my. Revelation opens by introducing John's vision in chapter 1. And then he addresses seven churches in Asia Minor in chapters 2 and 3. Paul worked for several years in Ephesus, started many of those churches. John lived some of his elderly years in Ephesus, and he would have been aware of all of those churches. And so he writes to them in chapters 2 and 3. And then Revelation shifts gears. This book provides the clearest biblical portrait of the events of a time called the tribulation. That is a time of judgment when those left on earth after the rapture of the church will suffer horribly. That's chapter 4 through chapter 18. John's vision portrays this judgment as a series of 21 horrible events. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven vials. 
Now, I will be the first one to tell you there are many, many details in the book of Revelation that can be confusing. But if you'll keep on reading, my goodness, I feel something powerful tonight. If you keep on reading, the most important message of the book of Revelation comes through loud and clear in the last four chapters, chapter 19 to 22. And the most powerful and most important message of the book of Revelation is this. Jesus will ultimately triumph over Satan and he will set up his eternal kingdom and the church will be in the center of it all. Somebody said it's a little cheesy but it works. I've read the last page in the book and we win. We win over Satan. We win over sickness. We win over suffering. We win over everything that has persecuted and tried to stop the church on this earth. We win. The book of Revelation, although it's filled with judgment, it doesn't end in judgment. It ends in paradise for all of the people of God. And so let's take just a scan of a few verses and then we'll close. Revelation chapter 1 verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, not of John, it's the revelation of Jesus, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly, everyone say shortly. Shortly doesn't mean quickly from John's perspective. It means suddenly. So it's not saying they'll happen next week, John. It's saying that when these signs of the times begin to happen, it will just be like rapid fire. And boy, haven't we seen that in the last few years we've lived on planet Earth. It's not that from John's day or from John's perspective, they would happen quickly. It's that when they start to happen, they will happen shortly, suddenly. They will suddenly come to pass. And Jesus sent and signified. Everyone say signified. That literally would mean in our vernacular, he symbolized it by his angel unto his servant John. And this is what you see when you look into the book of Revelation. You read all these things and there's, oh my goodness, there's beasts and hooves and horns and eyes. And it's just a little perplexing and confusing. Why does this important book use so many symbols? There's two or three answers you could give. First of all, symbols in a prophetical book, they sort of function like uh, political cartoons. In a, in a prophetic book... Uh, symbols would, would function like political cartoons in our day. If, if I go to America, I don't have to be an American, I don't have to know very much, but I know if I see a political cartoon in a newspaper in the USA and it's got an elephant in it, I know what that means. That's one of their political parties. If I see a donkey, I know that that's their other political party. I'm not even going to comment on any of that. I'm just going to keep on moving in the Bible. Okay. So it's like, so it's, if you see a symbol in this book, it pictures something. Immediately, you, you kind of would, would have an idea that, that this is what it means, especially the readers that read it in John's day. Secondly, symbols were like a spiritual code that protected uh, first century Christians. Um, you know, you can get up in Canada and say pretty much whatever you want. We've got free speech and all of that kind of stuff. You may not get to do everything you want, but you can pretty much say anything you want. And, and the, in, in this day, it was not true. 
And so when they talked about, uh, th there's a place where uh, the, by, uh, one of the epistles signs off from Babylon. They weren't in Babylon. They were in Rome. But they called Rome Babylon because it was the, that old Babylonian system, that system of putting the worship of man at the top. And so sometimes symbols are like a, a code uh, to protect. They can't say the emperor or they can't say uh, the city of Rome. So, so there are symbols that identify those things. Uh, uh, now that's for them, but for us, why would God use symbols in the book of Revelation, in this prophetic book? One thing is that symbolic language is not weakened by time. Now, you've read some of the prophecy preachers, and, and, and you know that some people, they see everything in the book of Revelation. Some people see the USA, and some people see airplanes, and some people see helicopters. and so it's, it's amazing what they can pick out of there. And they may be right, but here's the thing about symbols. When John wrote this, God couldn't reveal to him, write the word helicopter, there was no word helicopter. Uh, he couldn't reveal to him, you know, write the word airplane. There was no such thing. And, and so John writes in symbols. And so a beast that is attacking, maybe it is some kind of, of, of helicopter with some kind of machine gun or laser on the front and they're flying through the air. And I don't know, and you don't know either, but you can pretend that you do if it makes you feel better. And, 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 and that's the thing. John wrote in symbols because the symbols are not weakened by time. And finally, symbols don't just give us information. Symbols impart information with emotion. So if the book of Revelation says a horrible beast, that's still a beast in the 21st century. It's still frightening. It's still vicious. It still has an agenda of, of mayhem and, and malice and hurt. And so that's, that's why God used symbols. And so literally in the first book, he, he gives us a couple of clues to understanding this book. That they, these things will suddenly, they'll shortly come to pass. When you start to see some of these signs of the times happen, it's just going to be like dominoes. It's going to start happening very rapidly. And he symbolized them, he signified them by his angel. In verse 3, the Bible says, Blessed is he that reads, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein. Watch this. For the time is at hand. I say to you emphatically, without apology, and without backing up one inch, that the New Testament church expected the return of Jesus Christ at any moment. And we still do because we believe what the New Testament church believed. There are some people that would try to tell you, well, the New Testament church, you know, they, they didn't think Jesus was coming in their lifetime and they didn't think Jesus was coming for hundreds of years. I don't agree with that for one second. If you read the New Testament, you'll see these things. The time is at hand. Now, if you're reading through the book of Revelation, I'd advise you to pay very close attention to verse 19 in chapter 1 because this is the prophetic outline for the book of Revelation. Write the things which thou hast seen, John. What had John seen? He had seen the ministry of the Lord Jesus. 
He'd seen his death, burial, and resurrection. He'd seen the birth of the church. So he saw the things which he had seen were all past tense. And write the things which are. What's that? That's those seven churches. That's the church at the end of the first century. The church that's now being persecuted and fighting false doctrine and experiencing opposition and, and, and under the thumb of Rome. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are. So if you wanted to divide it up, you could say the things that he has seen. Well, that's the gospels and maybe chapter one of this book. The things which are, that's the seven church letters in Revelation 2 and 3. And then he says, and write the things which shall be hereafter. What's going to happen after the Gospels, after the birth of the church, after the church age? Well, that's easy. The rapture is going to happen, and then the tribulation is going to happen. So write about those things, and that's exactly what he does. Now, you'll find all kinds of people that might differ with this, but I believe that in chapter 4, verse 1... Right after he writes to the seven churches of Asia Minor, we see a, a picture of the rapture. After this I looked, behold, a door was opened in heaven. The first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet. Everyone say trumpet. And that means something. Talking with me, which said, come up hither. That's a picture of the rapture. And I will show thee things which must be hereafter. From that moment... Through the rest of the book, right almost to the end, th this book shows us what's going to happen after the rapture. So you can read Revelation chapter 4 and 5. There's a beautiful scene in the throne room where the saints of God are casting their crowns at the feet of Jesus. But then it turns back to earth and, and there's all these plagues and all this trouble and people are screaming and crying, wanting to die and they can't die. It's the most horrific, horrible thing. And if you start adding up the percentages and adding up the numbers, it looks like almost half of the world will be killed in all of the plagues that are poured out on the earth. Now, I'm going to tell you this tonight. Again, you can differ. You can find four prophecy preachers and three other pastors, and certainly you can find a televangelist that disagrees with this. That's easy. We believe that the rapture of the church will happen before the tribulation is unleashed on this earth. So the book of Revelation is to give us a picture of what's going to happen after the church is removed from this earth. Why do we need to know that? Because that's pretty good motivation to make sure you get yourself in the rapture of the church. That's why we need to know that. One of the reasons we believe this is that the church doesn't appear on earth in the book of Revelation after chapter 4 verse 1 and it doesn't appear again until this verse in the very last chapter of the book I Jesus have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches I want you to share this vision in the churches the word church is absent for most of the book of Revelation why because they're not here on this planet but then there's this the Bible tells us that the church will experience suffering on this earth. Anybody ever experienced a little bit of suffering in your life? You've gone through some things that were difficult. We will experience suffering, but suffering in Scripture is different than this word. First Thessalonians, For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ.
God is not going to pour out his wrath on his bride. That's not happening. But he is going to pour out his wrath on a world that has rejected him and followed after the devil's plan and his kingdom. We also have this, Revelation 3 verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. God promised us in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation, church, I'm going to keep you from this horrible hour of temptation. It's going to happen to all of the world at the same time. It's going to try everyone that dwells on the earth. I'm glad to announce to you, church, that before that horrible, devastating day arrives, I believe the rapture of the church is going to happen and God is going to snatch away his people. But there's more. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, we read this at funeral services around gravesides. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. You say, what's that got to do with the rapture? One little two-letter word. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Paul believed that there was a great possibility that before he met his execution at the hands of Nero, he could go in the rapture. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. There, he believed that there were going to be some people that he knew that were going to go in the rapture. Our elders believe that. The people that preached us and prayed us into existence in this province decades ago, they believed that Jesus was going to return in their lifetime. Do you know why they were motivated? Do you know why they preached it so straight? Do you know why they reached so far? It's because they believed that Jesus could come in their lifetime. I don't want to fumble the ball now that we're really close to the rapture, now that the signs of the times are really unfolding quickly. I sure don't don't want to drop the ball and say, I think we got time to wait. I think we got time to just kind of play around and we'll all get serious in a few more years when our kids grow up. I defy that. We need to be ready at any moment for the Lord to come back. We need to be ready at any moment for Jesus to receive his church. That's what we were preached to. That's what they preached to us. That's what we grew up on. But it's more than that. It's in the word. Paul believed it. He said, we shall not all sleep. You see, I'm not looking for the appearance of the Antichrist. Do I believe his agendas at work in the world? Yes, because the Bible says it. Do I believe that so many things that are happening are the spirit of the Antichrist? You bet your bottom dollar I believe that. But I am not looking for the unveiling of the Antichrist. I am looking for the appearing of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to Titus, he said, We are, the church is, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Paul knew about the Antichrist. He wrote about him. He, 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 he talked about that guy. He talked about that agenda that would be unleashed. He talked about people that would follow after that. But Paul wasn't looking for the Antichrist. Paul was looking for the Lord Jesus to come back in the clouds of glory and I am too. I'm not looking for the next big political thing that's going to happen on this earth. I'm looking for the next event on God's calendar and that is the rapture of the church. One of the most important scriptures you need to understand about the rapture is this one. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians. 
In fact, this is the chapter where he writes about that man of sin, the beast, the Antichrist. And here's what he says. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. The power, the kingdom, the agenda of the Antichrist was already working in Paul's day. But here's what he said. Only he who now letteth will let. What's that mean, Pastor? Look it up in, in a concordance. Letteth means to allow. He who is now allowing will continue to allow until he be taken out of the way. Now the church isn't a he in prophecy. We're a she. We're the bride of Christ. But the Holy Ghost is a he. Prophetically. And so what Paul is saying here is right now the Holy Ghost is allowing the Antichrist to do what he can do. Oh, but he's got a leash on him like you can't believe. But God's Spirit is allowing the Antichrist, allowing Satan, allowing the end time agenda to, to begin to form. That's happening. God's allowing it. He who now letteth, he who now alloweth. Another translation of that word would be prevented. He who now prevents will continue to prevent. You see, the Antichrist, he's only allowed to do so much. He's prevented from doing everything that he wants. The devil can't do anything he wants in this world. He's prevented by doing much of it by the Spirit of God that resides in this earth. And where does the Spirit of God reside primarily in this earth? Christ in you, the hope of glory. So right now, the thing that stands between the Antichrist, the devil, the false prophet, the beast, the thing that, that stands between any of those people coming to power, any of those spirits having any kind of domination in this world is the church of the Lord Jesus. And the Holy Ghost, who's now allowing some things but preventing other things, he's allowing some things to unfold but keeping back other things and holding back the flood tide of evil, he will allow some things he will prevent some things until he be taken out of the way how does the holy ghost get taken out of the way of the devil the rapture when the church of the lord jesus christ is caught up in the air and they go in the rapture at that moment there's going to be a flood tide of evil and filth and perversion and violence like you cannot even begin to comprehend right now you are the one thing that prevents the devil from having his full agenda on this planet so you need to act like that and you need to pray like that and you need to take authority like that because you don't need to let the devil be having authority over your family when he can't even have authority over the governments of the world and over his agenda because of the church you're part of the church so your home your family your marriage that's your little local scene and the world and the countries and the nations that's the big picture but in either case it is the church of the living God that has authority to hold back the flood tide of the devil's agenda until that moment when he's taken out of the way. And then the tribulation will be unleashed on this earth. The Bible contains absolutely no instructions to tell the church how to prepare for the tribulation. 
tells us how to get through problems, tells us how to overcome all kinds of obstacles in this life, but there's no instruction in the Bible to tell us after uh, the, the, the Antichrist comes and after the, the beast and the false prophet. I don't believe that the, the beast, the Antichrist and the false prophet, I don't believe they could get their agenda together with the church here. Can you imagine what World Network of Prayer would be posting? Can you imagine what we'd be praying in prayer meetings? We would bind that dude and tie him up in knots in the spirit. That would be one time when we'd finally have some unity in the church around the world. Everybody want to pray that dude out of business. I don't believe he can get his agenda together. But what changes on this world is when the Lord Jesus comes back and receives his church unto himself. This book is not the revelation of John. Kathy, come back and help me. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. By the time the book of Revelation is over, Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, religious Babylon, political Babylon, every nation, every sinner, everyone living, and everyone in the grave, everyone will be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ. John and the early church, they lived under intense persecution that we can hardly fathom. So no wonder, as he concludes this book, he says, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. And he says, Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The cry of John's heart was, Jesus, I've seen my friends martyred. I've seen your church persecuted. I've seen floods of false doctrine and false teachers attack the church and attack the truth. I've lived to be an old man. I've had a lot of suffering. I've had a lot of pain and heartache. Even so, come Lord Jesus. I'm not thinking, give me a few more days to get my house in order. I'm not thinking, no, I'm having too good a time down here. Don't come yet. Everything in his spirit was, I agree, Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Church, I know we've got, we got a great church. We've got a wonderful little city. We've got beautiful lives. We really do look around the world sometime it doesn't even take a tragedy like Afghanistan if you just look around the world to know that you're abundantly blessed we've got a good life here but you can't imagine what that place is like what that life is like in one split second, the Bible says, in the twinkling of an eye, you'll go to take one step on Main Street and you'll land in the air and your next step will be on streets of gold. That's the rapture. That's the hope. The problem in this generation, in my opinion, is we've got so much media. Media has the ability to make fake things look real and real things look fake. And we've ingested so much media that everything kind of seems like a movie. Everything kind of seems like a fantasy. Everything seems to be like airbrushed and photoshopped and it's all kind of better 
than it really is. And we kind of, that's the deal we make with the media. We know that in our head. She's not really that pretty. That's a filter. We know that in our head. (laughs) Heaven's way better than what you could ever imagine. Heaven's not going to be some cheap copy of something that you read in a book. Heaven is where Jesus has been preparing us a place for 2,000 years. And he's coming back quickly. What do you mean quickly? John wrote that 2,000 years ago. No, no, suddenly. When it happens, you won't have time to get right. You won't have time to get everything in order. You won't have time to do it all over. It's just going to be suddenly, quickly, in the twinkling of an eye. Say, that's scary, Pastor. No, that's not scary. This is scary. Watching a world spiral out of control in a pandemic that even the the great brave medical scientists can't seem to get a handle on. That's scary. Watching Afghanistan literally collapse in a week and people screaming to get out of there and they're being slaughtered wholesale already and they can't even get to the airport to get a flight out. They can't leave and they know their days are numbered. That's scary. Here is scary. There is beautiful. There is wonderful. There, there's no more tears and no more pain and no more fear and no more suffering and no more sickness and no more crippled up limbs. None of that. Oh, thank you, Jesus. I'm finished. I need to be finished. Lift up your hands and your voice and thank you for hope. Thank you for hope. This is our hope. We are looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is our hope. Oh, my, 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 my. You're going to get to see some loved ones again. This is our hope. You won't have that pain in your body anymore. This is our hope. You'll never shed another tear as long as you live. This is our hope. Stand with me, everybody, would you? And just let your hands keep on going. And Oh, my, I feel something so precious in this room tonight.